Welcome to RUF. It is good to see you no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done. We are glad that you're here. It's good to be with you. It's good to sing and pray with you and to worship Jesus with you. Uh, And if I haven't met you, my name is Matt Patrick and I'm the RUF campus minister with Wofford RUF. And uh, our intern, Caroline, and I would love to uh, set up a time to get coffee or lunch with you at some point. Hope things are going well. Hope Parents Weekend was good for you. You guys, it was great being with many of you and your parents at our house this past Saturday. RUF stands for Formed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries here trying to walk alongside you in your faith so you can grow while you're in college. And we're an imperfect crew of people Um, trying to figure out what it looks like from the scriptures to love God, love others, and to love Wofford. But more importantly, we're people bound by the reality that before anything else, God loves us. God loves us. And what we've been seeing this fall so far, we've been in the series focusing on the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus were stories that Jesus told in his life and ministry and He would tell these stories to make sense for people what it looked like to follow him in a fallen world. And oftentimes, when he would tell these stories, he would get under people's skin. He would make people scratch their heads. He would disorient them and disrupt our categories that we might find life in Christ in a fallen world. And tonight, our parable that we're looking at is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a parable about being enough. Jim Carrey um, delivered this famous speech at the 2016 Golden Globes Awards. And when you watch the clip, you can watch this online, you'll hear the announcer say, Please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And then Carrey takes the microphone and says, Thank you. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. But then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search. I ultimately know that it won't fulfill me, but these, these awards are important to me. Now, Jim Carrey is on to something here. He's speaking to the reality that we all have things in our lives that we believe will make us enough. And he's also hitting on the reality that we, one of our biggest fears is never being enough in life, is never being enough. And uh, being enough, it's a word and a phrase that captivates our minds and hearts. And it's it's the core issue of this passage, the word enough. So follow along, and the text is there in your handout. Um, Friends, this is God's Word. He's spoken to us not to give us a bunch of rules to follow or a theology exam to master. He's spoken to you and to me because He loves us. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, 
I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of God for the people of God. Let's go to him now and ask that he might teach us. Lord, we do give thanks and we acknowledge your word is living and active and we've experienced that thus far in opening your word, exploring the parables. Lord, we also come to you humbly and we acknowledge that our minds are busy and our hearts are restless. We have exams on our minds. We have difficult conversations on our minds. We have mistakes on our minds. We have doubts on our minds. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves, and we ask that you'd be so kind as to meet us right where we are and do that by your Spirit and your Word tonight, that we might become more like Jesus, that we'd be both hearers and doers of your Word. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So you have the game plan in front of you in the handout. First, the lie that we all believe, and second, the gift that we all need. The lie we believe, the gift that we all need. Let's go to the first one. So guys, Jesus told this story. It's important that we notice this in verse 9. He told this story to a very specific group of people. When you look at the parables, you always want to ask the question, who's Jesus talking to? In verse 9, we read that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Key word there is righteous, but what on earth does that mean? It's a churchy word you probably have used a lot growing up if you grew up in the church, but what does it mean? One author defines righteous or righteousness as being enough. Being enough. To be righteous is to be enough for God and with God and to be enough for others. And the Pharisee in this story believes that he is enough. Not only does he believe that he's enough, he trusts in himself that he is enough. When it comes to his relationship with God, our passage makes it abundantly clear where the Pharisee's confidence lies. Notice how many times the Pharisee describes his piety and refers to himself. Did you notice this? Verse 11, the Pharisee standing off by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, etc. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's completely self-absorbed. And he's been utterly deceived because he's bought into the lie that he can make himself with his own efforts enough. He can be enough on his terms, with his piety, on his terms. And we know that the Pharisee is bought into this lie because he does what all self-righteous people do. He starts comparison stuff. He starts comparing himself to this tax collector. He does this ruthlessly. 
Because when you bought into the lie that you can make yourself enough, you become hyper aware of everyone around you. I mean, you begin to p- compare your life and your piety and your sin with those around you. My good friend Jordan, uh, who is a pastor in Austin, Texas, puts it this way. So helpful. When you're self-righteous, you become obsessed with other people. And you measure your life against theirs. Because for you to be enough, that means there must be other people who are not enough. And so Jordan continues, Lord, thank you that I'm not, that I'm unlike some people. I'm not having a sip of alcohol before I'm 21. Lord, thank you that I don't leave RUF and head straight to the bar afterwards. Thank you that I'm not judgmental. I'll have a beer or two, but I don't get drunk. I'm right in the middle. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like her. I hook up with guys, but I don't go all the way. Thank you that I am not like them. Comparison. Great sign of self-righteousness. Another way you know your heart is in a self-righteous posture is by allowing your achievements to define you. Allowing your achievements to define you. In short, you begin to believe that you are what you do. You are what you do. Author David Zoll puts it this way. He just calls it performancism. Performancism. This is what he says. Performancism is the assumption, usually unspoken, that there is no distinction between what we do and who we are. Your resume isn't just part of your identity. It is your identity. What makes you lovable, indeed, what makes your life worth living is your performance at X, Y, or Z. Performancism holds that if you are not doing enough or doing enough well, you are not enough. At least you're less than those who are, quote-unquote, killing it. Performancism turns life into a competition to be won or a problem to be solved, as opposed to, say, a series of moments to be experienced or an adventure to relish. Performancism invests daily tasks with existential significance and turns even menial activities into measures of enoughness. The language of performancism is the language of scorekeeping, Zal continues. And just like the weight scale or the calendar, it knows no mercy. When your identity is tied to your achievements and your performance, everything that you do now, big or small, has profound weight to it. And there is no wiggle room for failure. No wiggle room. I've said this before that self-righteousness and pride is like having bad breath. It's like you, you're the only one who knows that you don't have it and everyone around you knows. Notice that the Pharisee's alone. There's a reason he's alone. His self-righteousness has, has driven others away. To experience fullness and, and enoughness in the world, you've got to be thin enough, pretty enough, successful enough, holy enough, athletic, fit enough, environmentally conscious enough, smart enough, popular enough, organized enough. Are you not exhausted yet as I say that? Of course you are. It's a never-ending treadmill. And uh, I love the Rocky movies uh, a lot. Um, and in Rocky one. Um, and as you probably know, Sylvester Stallone, this is what made him famous. He wrote that movie, and it's a classic boxing movie. And his wife asks him this question. He has this ruthless kind of drive to him. And she asks, she says, why do you have to fight? And Rocky responds, 
Because if I can f- survive 15 rounds with this guy, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. <coughs> and it's what we're fighting as well. And here's the thing. How many Rocky movies have they made? Too many. Too many is correct. And here's the deal. Why? The fight is never over. It's never enough. As my friend Jordan says, uh, what if finding enoughness is not like running on a treadmill or building a resume, but what if it was like opening a gift? What if opening a gift made you enough? Let's look at the second point. The gift we all need. So you've got the Pharisee praying in the self-righteous posture that he has and his self-righteous comparison scorekeeping vocabulary. And then you have a tax collector and he prays too, he, but he prays very differently with a different posture and different content. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, I tell you, Jesus kind of backs up from the parable and says, this is what it's about. This man went down to his house justified rather than the older or than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So you've got a tax collector, and they were the scoundrels of the day. You might know this. You did not want to be caught hanging around a tax collector if you wanted to maintain a good reputation. And it was never a good sign if a tax collector showed up to your house because they collected money from, uh, for the Roman government. They want to take stuff from you. They also cheat. It's like a, a crooked lawyer who knew how to work the system in his own favor and always had a fifth of whiskey under his desk. I mean, always would drink on the job, cut corners. This is a tax collector. And this tax collector is standing far off. He's beating his chest. He's praying this way because he's at the end of himself. The tax collector knows in his bones, in his mind, in his heart, that he has no doubt he is not enough. If we know anything about the tax collector is that he knows and believes that he is not enough. He is not enough. And yet, why does he cry? He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. His prayer is short. His prayer is simple. The tax collector knows that in order to experience being enough, he has to have help from the outside because it's not coming in here. Rather than putting his confidence in himself, he is banking on God's mercy. And the tax collector says, look, look, God, I'm too dirty. I'm too sinful. You know what I've done. I'll never be good enough or holy enough to be made right with you. Your mercy is the only shot that I've got. That is the power of the prayer. He's throwing himself on the mercy of God. And what do we read happens? He walks away justified. The word justified simply refers to having a right standing with God. To be justified is to be enough. In our passage, we see that you are made right with God. You are enough by receiving the free gift of God's mercy. Receiving a free gift of God's mercy. Mary Carr, um, in her memoir, she tells this story of being 14 years old and extremely depressed, alone, miserable, unhappy. And one day she decides 
when her parents leave the house, she's going to take a handful of pills and end her life and just end this thing. And she ends up doing that, but she survives and gets really sick and she passes out on the floor. Her parents discover her, they come back, they find her, and they didn't realize that she tried to commit suicide. And they thought it was food poisoning. And so after a while, her dad asks if there's any food for her that sounds appetizing. Do you want to eat anything? And for whatever reason, in that moment, Mary asks for plums. They sounded good to her. The problem was that plums were out of season during this time, and so Mary goes to bed. But the next morning, her dad comes into the room with dozens of plums for her. He drove through the night through Texas and into Arkansas to get the plums. And here's what Mary Carr writes about this morning. It's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin of the plum is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck. And the nectar runs down your chin. And you snap out of it or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and someone who cares enough to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution to live. You don't earn it. It's given. Friends, you don't get to be enough and experience fullness in this life by getting on the never-ending treadmill of performancism. You are enough in God's sight by accepting Jesus and his gift of grace to you and sinking your teeth in it. And what you'll find and what you'll taste is that he is good and it will change you. There's all kinds of things we could say about this passage in terms of how to apply it to everyday life. I just want to say two things. The first one refers to prayer. So last week, remember the persistent widow um, and the way that she prayed. So continuing to think about prayer, I think this passage offers some, some things for us to chew on. You have two different kinds of people praying here, don't we? We have two different kinds of prayers One prays self-righteously and one prays honestly and with humility. Did you notice the tax collector in his honest prayer, how short it was? How brief? Friends, do not dress your prayers up. Don't try to use theological terms that you don't even know what it means. Lord, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you're worried about. He's your father. He wants you to be honest. And I think the second thing that this passage makes us think about is how to change. How to change. How do you change? How do you stop sinning? How do you have the affections of your heart going from loving these kinds of things to loving other kinds of things? Um, I do love The Office. We're not going to talk about The Office tonight. Uh, Surprise, surprise. But we are going to talk about Stranger Things and I am going to spoil the show for you. And I'm not sorry about it because you could have watched it all summer long. All right, <clears throat> here we go. One of the characters who I love is Billy. But Billy is on the struggle bus in season three, isn't he? If you've seen the show, you know this. I love Billy. Billy gets overtaken by the shadow monster and it ends up taking over his life. 
He begins to hurt others. It makes him do all kinds of crazy things. It's inside of him. He knocks people out unconscious, drags them across town, tries to hunt down his own sister. And in the last episode, you know what is coming here. There's a great showdown in the mall that is so epic. And uh, it's between the teens. You have L. you have Eleven, and then Billy's sister on, uh, on the one hand. And then you have the, the shadow monsters and the minions, and you have Billy on the other team. There's this good and evil battle in the mall. And Billy attacks Eleven. And right when he is about to kill her, Eleven says these words to Billy. Seven feet, you told her, the wave was seven feet. She's referring, Eleven's referring to a day in Billy's life long ago when he went surfing with his mom. Eleven continues, you ran to her on the beach. There were seagulls there. She wore a hat with a blue ribbon, a long dress with a blue and red flower and yellow sandals covered in sand. She was pretty. She was really pretty. And you were happy. As Eleven speaks those words, she's looking him right in the face and something happens. Billy wakes up. He wakes up. The shadow monster leaves him and he is changed. The shadow monster has no hold on him anymore. And he ends up fighting for the other team and dangerously risking him his life to do this. Guys, sin is like the shadow monster in Billy's life. And if you try to fight it on your own, you will not last it. You don't have a chance. I don't have a chance. You'll lose every time. Because here's the deal, y'all. Sin can only be driven out by love. It can only be driven out by love of someone greater than you. The way that you change is by encountering God's mercy and love in your face. That's how you wake up. That's how your heart changes. Enough. You and I long for someone to look at us square in the face and we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It is finished. You are enough. And while our hearts are prone to wander and are endlessly on the search to be enough, Jesus comes to you, and instead of telling you to be good enough and to be holy enough or successful enough or nice enough or smart enough, he comes to you and he comes to me and he says, my death is enough for you. And he says, my resurrection is enough for you. I am enough for you. Friends, accept the free gift. Sink your teeth in it and enjoy it. He is enough. That's good news. Let me pray for us.